the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. With the Christmas Day festivities now behind us, I'm looking towards 2019 and teasing out some of the main challenges that corporate Ireland will face in the new year. I was joined in studio by businessman Morris Pratt and Graeme, head of the National Transport Authority and Cork property developer Michael O'Flynn. I began by asking Morris Pratt about Brexit. You wear a number of hats in your role as a, as a businessman, as a non-executive director, as a chairman of a number of companies. You're a chairman of the, uh, the ITIC, the Irish uh, Tourist Industry Confederation. You're a chairman of uh, Unifar, uh, which is in the uh, pharma sector. And you're chair, I think I'm right in saying you're chair of the European Movement, mm. uh, which is a body which uh, advocated for the UK to remain when the last uh, referendum uh, came around. Uh, how do you see Brexit and its impact on business next year? Uh, well, I see it with great uncertainty because nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. I think from a business point of view, businesses generally have had to move into operational mode, um, even though they don't know what the actual impact of it is likely to be. Um, uh, one part of me says uh, it, it can't happen or it won't happen um, in terms of a hard Brexit because of the disastrous consequences, both for the UK economy in the short term, as well as for its relationship with Europe. Uh, and for Ireland, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, businesses um, have got uh, have got to prepare as best they can. Um, I think if it happens uh, as hard, we'll see supply chain disruption. Uh, we'll see significant inflation in certain sectors as a consequence of that. Uh, so, um, I mean, I think re- in reality, businesses have just had to move on and try to, try to plan as best they can. Um, and um, let's let's talk about Unifar. Have you done contingency planning in Unifar for this, uh, particularly in terms of the supply chain, which you mentioned? We have. Yeah, we've been in discussions with suppliers for the best part. Well, all this year, but obviously they've geared up, particularly uh, in the last quarter. You might might have seen, but recently the um, health uh, the uh, HPRA uh, have announced that they will allow a six-month extension to UK licences for medicines coming into Ireland. So at least there won't be a short-term issue come March time, um, which will help. Right. And in terms of tourism then, because UK visitors are a huge part of the tourist numbers that come to mm. Ireland every year. Perhaps not the biggest spenders, but they come in large numbers. And there's got to be concern there for hoteliers and for everybody involved in the tourist industry. Well, there is. And obviously, tourism took a very big hit. Uh, uh, will take a very big hit next year because of the increase in VAT. That's €460 million Euro, uh, that, will, that will flow into the government coffers, but will be taken out of people's pockets, essentially, in terms of spend. So that's not good news for tourism. On the other hand, it's been a record year, so it's been great. From that perspective, uh, we look hard in the tourism sector at what air access and sea access into Ireland is in the following year, because that usually is a key indicator. So air access next year will be up 4%, uh, Mm. which is good news, and Mm. sea access will be up 7%. Uh, So that should help, um, uh, and and the consequence of that should be that tourism will grow about 4% next year. But of course, that again uh, doesn't really forecast any great change in the UK market, uh, and that's of of course completely uncertain. Yeah. Michael Flynn, what impact might Brexit have in your business or your industry? I think the word, you know, is uncertainty and Morris, you know, mentioned that. I am very unsure as to what real impact it will have. The fact that it's such a close trading partner means that it will have a big impact in Ireland. But in terms of the property side, people see a lot of pluses because people will relocate here. I don't see I don't see it like that. I, I think um, if the UK is down, it'll impact hugely on us as an economy. 
I am perplexed by the UK in that I operate over there and I am still hearing people saying that, well, we never thought it was going to be like this. We never thought the impact would be this. And I, I just wonder, you know, um, despite the political upheaval over there, will the Irish way come about? Will they vote again? Will it go back to to a further vote? Because whatever they're going to end up with is nothing like what they anticipated. But I don't think they fully debated the, the consequences of, 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 you know, of Brexit. And I, on, on the UK side, we're mainly in, in the residential area. Yeah, what's the size and scale of your business over there? Well, we're managing up to 10,000 beds. We own student accommodation. That's the main core of what we do now in the UK. We, we, have, some, we have some residential developments as well. We don't have the same scale of, of commercial that we used to have. And I'm quite happy about it being residential. People will always need places to sleep. You know, it's, it's a very, very uh, um, solid business model in terms of having income from from beds. Having said that, you know, if you if the currency is going to be affected, the banking world is going to be affected. If banking world is affected, as we well know, everything is affected. So I, I, I can't, I just can't see where the Brexiteers are going. I can't, you know, I see a lot of people who who were who were um, in favour of Brexit now beginning to question their own judgment and logic. But the problem we had was everyone came out who were against it. Not everyone came out for it. And that's why I wish that they would put it back to the people, say, OK, we decided we're doing it, but this is what we're doing and we're all happy to do it. Unfortunately, there's a slightly different mentality in the UK to Ireland. And um, in Ireland, we have a habit of voting again. In England, you know, even some hardline remains tell me, oh, no, we decided we're leaving and we have to leave. So it's, it's, it's a difficult call. Yeah. How many employees in the UK? 300, 350. And what would be the general view among your staff where they remain or leave? Well, the interesting thing, in, in the very early days of the Brexit campaign, I remember doing um, a straw poll at a management meeting. Probably 35 to 40 people at it. It was two towards one, it was 70, 30 in favour of Brexit. Wow. I couldn't believe it. This was months before the election. Months. But was that an eye-opener when you look back at it? I was shocked. And... I remember saying that to English people afterwards and they were, no, 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 that's not, that's not representative at all. But of course, the, the reality is it, it was representative because we had people there from the various complexes we have around the country. So it wasn't just a London vote we were listening to. It was a, a more a broader geographical vote. And um, I, I think now a lot of the people there are worried. And I think that worry would translate into a, a different vote not a hugely different vote, but maybe enough to change it. But will that ever happen? I have, I have some doubts. Sure. And Graham, I don't know if the National Transport Authority has caught in the crosshairs of Brexit, but is there an impact for you? There is, because um, we are about movement of people and cross-border movement is also important. The uh, Belfast-Dublin um, train and also the bus movements right across that keep the connections between people both north and south. So it really depends on what uh, former Brexit we have and um, what regulations have to be put in place to be uh, able to continue the movement of people across the border. So 
there has been contingency planning done by uh, our parent uh, department, uh, Department of Transport, on what uh, needs, what agreements need to be put in place post uh, Brexit, particularly post a hard border Brexit. So if there's a no deal Brexit, what happens on the Dublin Belfast line every day? Does the train have to stop just before the border and somebody get on with a dog uh, uh, wearing a... Uh, a police uniform uh, walking up and down the train or what happens? Well, that's one of the scenarios that could be in place or but it's mostly about uh, the regulation um, and the safety associated because it's a shared rail service between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic. It means that uh, the regulations as they currently apply because they're European regulations, the driver training, their standards, they're all the same. Whereas if it's a, a, a in a Brexit situation, uh, those may not be recognised on both side, on each side of the border. So a different form of uh, agreements need to be put in place. Um, so there's a bit of time needed uh, to be able to, to do that. So it, there's the possibility, the worst scenario is that the train stops at the border. Uh, What's the likelihood of that? Well, it depends on really what the, what you know, these are all the contingency plannings, plans that you have to consider. These are all the scenarios you have to consider. Well, let's say there's a no deal Brexit. Um, they can't reach any agreement and the UK exits on May, March 29th with, with no deal. Uh, effectively, what happens then? What, what's the likelihood of the train not running between Dublin and Belfast? Well, we would be doing everything to ensure that the train keeps running. So uh, it depends on how quickly we can put in place alternative uh, uh, safety, I suppose, agreements um, to enable the the service to continue to be run. But all those um, aspects will be considered and are being considered to ensure that we can continue to operate a rail service. Yeah. Now, by the way, I should ask you, Dublin and Belfast will be used by a lot of business people going both ways. Yes. And they might, um, a lot of grumbles over the years about a uh, lack of investment in the service and, uh, you know, it's getting a bit slower and, and perhaps needs a bit of modernisation. Any plans for that in the coming year? Well, there's ambitions on both sides to improve the service, the Dublin Belfast Rail Service, uh, and to uh, put in place an hourly service between Dublin and Belfast. And it just requires some investment on both sides. Um, and But that is what we want to do uh, over the next number of years. Okay. How much from the Southern side? Uh, I don't have the exact figures, but um, it's something that we definitely, uh, I think there is ambitious, as I said, from both rail um, operators to ensure that there's an hourly service from Dublin to Belfast. Morris, I mean, if the Dublin Belfast line wasn't to run or if there was a disruption to the service, even if it was only for one day, it would be disastrous, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. You see, we're back to the issue of confidence and certainty, you know. And I mean, businesses always crave certainty so you can make your plan- decisions in relation to capital investment where you put it and so on. But if you move uncertainty into the consumer's mind, which is where it's at at the moment in the context of Brexit, then people make decisions, um, which would not be decisions they would normally make. So, they're, uh, you know, they're, you're disrupting people's lives, obviously. You're disrupting businesses um, and people make all alternative arrangements. which is why I come back to the point that um, in, in a disruptive context, all of this just will add to cost. It adds cost to whatever you're doing. I mean, a classic example for me would be uh, Rotterdam uh, is is seen as an alternative location in terms of uh, goods that would have to bypass Britain. But it takes a lot longer for the goods to get from Rotterdam uh, than it does. And it's far more costly to get them from Rotterdam to Dublin or to Ireland. So 
you know, that's just going to add, add to people's costs. So if you're taking money out of people's pockets, you're, you're hastening the, the, the onset of a potential recession. And that's the reality. What about this suggestion that Ross Lair and Waterford could maybe take some of the strain off Dublin Port in a no-deal scenario where there are huge uh, customs delays and so forth? Do you see that as, as a viable option? Well, again, it depends on what the cost factors are like. I mean, uh, what, what you'd have to do in that scenario is, uh, at least what the operators would have to do, the sea carriers would have to do, is look at what are the economics of it. But I mean, it's, uh, if you just look at, for instance, the fact that nobody can get any warehouse space anywhere within 50 miles of Dublin currently, um, there are no boats available, there are no... There, there are no um, there are no carriers available to to uh, to come off current routes. So you know you can't. Uh, you know, a boat, a new boat, is planned six, seven, eight years in advance. So there isn't there isn't the capacity available. I mean the the um, the thing that interested me about looking back over the last year, uh, looking at the spring, was the snow, the effect the snow had, and how long it took, for instance, for supermarkets to recover um, in terms of goods on their shelves. It tells you we have a just in time. Mm. supply chain, which is understandable in, in the context of efficiency. Um, so if you have delays, if you can't get goods uh, in, you're going to see lots of that happening, which is uh, not good. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about retail because you have some experience of this uh, sector, having previously worked for Queensward and T- uh, Tesco, and you also supplied it uh, when you were chief executive of C&C. It's been a brutal year for retail in the UK in particular. I mean, we even saw ASOS uh, recently, the online uh, retailer, which was supposedly making hay against the bricks and mortar guys, but even they're suffering. They had a really bad November. Uh, and Mike Ashley, uh, Sports Direct, etc., saying it's it's really, really tough out there. How do you see retail, uh, in Ireland in particular, in 2019? Well, we, we, we have tended to slightly lag what's happened in the UK, um, but to have followed that, that particular trend. So, I mean, you can see, we've seen it for the last decade, the hollowing out of the high street. Um, number one, you've seen the move of large, you've, you've seen large retailers move uh, out of town, and now you see the consumer... Um, bypassing those locations and wanting to shop conveniently again. And part of that is to do with uh, lifestyle change, um, it's to do with time poverty, um, it's to do with people wanting to shop, you know, more, more on a daily and more on a convenient basis. It's also partly health and, and uh, health related too. So retail uh, is, is under huge pressure as a consequence of that and, of course, the structural change because of retail is now omni-channel. So, um, you know, consumers can bypass um, uh, so is there a day of reckoning coming for Irish retailers? Well, um, I don't know if you'd call it a day of reckoning. I mean, one has to assume that they're planning for, uh, they're, they're going through change mode and they recognise what, what's happening. Um, I'm sure they do. Um, but, I mean, the, the big issue is can they, can they balance multi-channel operation and make profit from doing so? Um, I mean, I, I know, uh, going back to my time involved with them, Brown Thomas's, one of the big issues uh, there, uh, and I'm sure it applies to ASOS, ASOS and others, is that a uh, high, high amount of stuff that gets sold online, in fashion in particular, gets returned. How much? What percentage, roughly? Well, it was, uh, at the time, I'm going, I'm going back now a number of years, but it was about 40 to 45% uh, in that particular area, in fashion. I'm not talking about across uh, all, all the For categories. the likes of Brown Thomas, I mean, it's all about fashion, isn't it, really? Well, uh, certainly fashion is very important to them, um, and it is, to obviously, to other retailers. So um, it's hard to know. I mean, they're, they're, it's hard to know where this will end up, other than that there will be fewer. Uh, and, of course, the other, the other key issue around this is, in particular in the UK, is that rents are, so, are too high. Um, so retailers are having a problem in, in that context too. That's a complaint in Ireland as well. Yes, I, I think that's, uh, I think it is. And I think that's, what, you know, when you look at what's happening to operational costs, um, you're looking at inflation in the economy, you're looking at pay rises, all those things mitigate against de- delivering a, an operating profit in the business. So 
uh, if you look down the pipe, I, I, there's no reason to think that Ireland will be any different to the way the UK is heading. Yeah, maybe we need to restructure our rates system as well, which a lot of retailers are calling for in the age of online that it's just not fit for purpose. Well, I mean, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, when I sometimes look at the States and I, I see the way the US post office has really created Amazon um, because it is what has it is what delivers for Amazon. Uh, and you look at the scale of it, you sort of say, and, and you see others say the same thing about um uh, about other uh, online operators like that, that they're using they're using infrastructure uh, which other people have invested in, including the taxpayer, and they're not actually paying anything for it. Uh, I think that's something governments will be looking at. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Michael, uh, let's talk about housing. It's the elephant in the room in some respects. And we seem, to be, uh, we seem to have been talking about a housing crisis in Ireland for a number of years and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. Might 2019 bring us a little closer to solving this problem in your opinion? I don't want to be you know, uh, pessimistic in any way, but no is the answer. I'm, we're talking about a housing crisis and we keep talking about a housing crisis mm. and somehow we think it's going to change without doing something that's meaningful and impactful. But we have a serious housing crisis. We don't have measures that are actually going to address that crisis. We have tinkering bits at the edge. We keep producing data which sort of suggests things are improving. They're not improving. Well, we're, they're saying, I mean, the year hasn't finished uh, quite yet, but they're saying 18, 19,000 uh, new homes built in 2018. That's the prediction there, thereabouts. Probably go above 20,000 in 19. Does that sound about right to you? It sounds about right in terms of numbers, but you're talking about, uh, you know, an actual demand of probably 35,000 plus, maybe 40,000 units. And uh, like I see a massive problem now because we're talking about a demand of 35, 40,000 units, but the capable demand, what I mean is people who are capable of purchasing it's probably only at the level we're at at the moment. And this is something that really nobody is talking about. And this is because of the central bank rules? It's because of the central bank rules. Well, not in total. I mean, the, the whole central bank macroprudential rules in concept is a good idea. But the, the overcorrection of regulation from the mistakes in the past is a very bad idea. We have people here consigned to rent for a long time because central bank rules are too restrictive. It's three and a half times salary. Look, you, in the UK, it's four and a half. We just have to face up to the fact that it's housing, solving housing is not just one item. It's a number of them. The central bank is a central part of that because people are paying more in rent than they would pay in a mortgage. Like, there is no logic to that. And I'm building houses 40 years. My standard couple cannot buy office now like they did 30, 40 years ago because the house prices are too expensive. Why are they too expensive? We have too much tax. We have VAT. At 13.5%. I keep saying it, and at this stage, the government wants us don't say this anymore because we're not changing it. We have to say it. And I, I know Morris referred to the VAT impacts on the tourist industry a few moments ago. But the reality of the situation is in the UK and North Ireland, it's zero VAT. Like, why should we tax young couples who are trying to get on the ladder? Mm. We're ever about more expensive housing. So, on one hand, you have taxes, on the other hand, you also have the cost of land. I mean, there is no logic to what land is costing as part of the development of, you know, appraisal. It's costing too much. We have to face up to that fact and we have to do something about it. But Michael, in terms of the price of land, 
property developers are paying those prices. I mean, is it up to you guys to sort of call a halt to this and to say this is mad? Well, Kieran, it's a very, it's a very fair point. Unfortunately, some of the entrants into the market haven't got the same cost of funds as some of the existing people in the market. But I would say to you that there is no logic to paying a price for land that you need house inflation to make a profit. I mean, in give the old banking... Of, give us the, some examples of the prices that have been paid for land, let's well, say on a per acre basis. I, I, I don't want to go into specific examples about any particular um, you know, company, but all I can say to you is that there are a number of examples where... Um, land is being sold at a price that you cannot build that land tomorrow or anytime soon. You must get house price inflation or a planning gain or indeed the cost reduction in, in terms of building. Like The latter two won't happen. So you're looking at a situation here where land is being sold that's zoned and a lot of it with infrastructure because it's overpaid for, it comes off the markets. We have less land. And like I'm tired of listening to experts on various mediums saying we have enough zone land in this country. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. If we had enough zone land in this country, we'd have land at prices that we could afford to build houses at. The land that's zoned is either not zoned in the right place or has infrastructure difficulties or the landowner just um, plainly won't sell. And that's an entitlement of property ownership. So if you add the cost of land which is hard, to, hard for me to defend your point that people are paying it. But that doesn't mean it's right. I mean, p- people sometimes think because a certain number of people do something that it's right. It's not right. We, we had yeah. this in the past. We must learn from the past. Well, and Michael, I would say to you, I've suggested different means of bringing down the price of land so that we can offer ho- houses. And like, there's a whole cohort of people in this country out of the housing market. Affordable housing is something we have to tackle. You have social housing, you have homelessness, which is an extraordinary um, poor state on everyone in this country. And that's a different issue. That's a social issue as well as a housing issue. You have social housing, which we neglected to provide for a long number of years. We don't have any radical plans to address social housing uh, um, supply. We just don't. We well, I think Owen Murphy, the uh, Minister for Housing, might disagree with you there. But Sorry, he's a lot of small schemes, Kieran. If you look up the report that came out last week from the department, there's a, there are a lot of small schemes being built, but there aren't enough housing units being built to make up for the lack of supply over so many years. And I would contend this other group being affordable. Like, a lot of the houses sold in the last few years are cash buyers, are... are supported by siblings or parents. Mm. They're special category purchasers. They're not the normal market. The normal market means that your average couple can go out and buy a house with a mortgage and afford to live. At this moment in time, we have to come up with a special category of affordable housing. And if we don't, more and more people are going to be on social and more and more people are in the rental system. Like What we have is a rental system of uh, this HAP system. I mean, if you really extracted the amount of people that are on housing assistant, assistance payments, it is quite extraordinary. And it's, sure. it's actually hiding the scale of the problem. Okay. Let's just talk about your own operations. How many houses uh, have you completed in 2018? I'd say the high 200s. High 200s. Okay. How does that compare with the previous year? It's up in the previous year. It's up. But we could build an awful lot more. But and in 2019, how many do you expect to be hoping we'd, we'll build somewhere between three and 400. But I, I, it depends on the market. I mean, the market really cooled back six months of, of this current year. And that's back to the point I was making. 
that even if the houses were being built, I don't think they actually could be sold because the people can get the money to buy them. Mm. So that's a very serious issue. Like, you're not, we're not looking for wage inflation so that people can afford housing. Like, you know, the government feel, oh, because they have um, the vacant site levy, which in concept is a good thing for those who are hoarding. I, I don't stand for anyone who's hoarding. But you can make somebody, and I've seen examples of this, any of your sites on, on that no, register? I, I have no site on a register, I'm, I'm pleased to tell you. Um, but I, I, I know sites that are on registers that are not viable to, you know, to develop. So here you have a situation now where it's not viable and you're being taxed and taxed. That makes them more, more unviable. So I, I don't understand that. That's a good concept. I worry about it, it will not make any difference to housing supply. And then they've formed this new land development agency, which I think is almost being put out there as the saviour of the housing crisis. In concept, developing houses on public lands is a good thing. Having an enabler, a facilitator to do that is mm. definitely a good thing. But I just worry as to what the land development agency, what's expected of them, what they're capable of doing. There's one thing here on I'm certain about. It won't have any impact in the short to medium term. And this is where we're not dealing with the crisis. Okay. This crisis is getting worse. You know I've been saying it for years that first of all it would happen and people were laughing a few years ago at me and now it's getting worse. And let me tell you here this morning the government are not doing enough and there's no point in saying so otherwise. if there was one measure the government might take what would it be? Well, one, the easiest one is that. That's the easiest one. I would say it... That's it a, I mean, Michael, you've got to understand that to a lot of people that's a tax break for developers. Listen, it's, it's we need to get over ourselves. Politicians, that's, that's very Ron, We need to get over ourselves in, in terms of... Uh, it will, of course, have an, a current impact on houses that are sold. But if you want to fix housing, you need to increase supply. If you want to increase supply, you need to improve, you know, um, actual viability. And, that, and you also need to improve affordability. So I'm not saying it's about rising prices. I'm saying you need to help those people to buy as well. So if you get a 13... I would say it's it's If you get a 13.5% break on VAT, does the price of housing go down? Yes. It will? Yes. You you, you would guarantee now in terms of your properties... Any house I'm selling, whether whether there's a clause in the contract or not, I will reduce... If I'm not paying it to the state, I will credit that to any buyer. And what it will do then is it will bring more houses into the market that are not there. Of course, it will increase the margin on existing viable properties. But we need to get over ourselves in relation to that. Yeah. There's no way around that situation. Like when the, when the hotel VAT changed, there was hotels in certain parts of the country that didn't need the VAT change, but there were many hotels that did need yeah. the VAT change. But you don't not do something because it's going to benefit somebody. You have to face the fact. And that's why I'm going back to land, if I can, for a second. Look, we haven't enough land in this country that's ready to build on at prices that we can build and sell. If I don't make a profit for of 15% approximately in, in a house, I can't fund it. And the sooner we face up to the fact that we have to fund, we have to have viable housing being produced by housing developers and get away from, from the mistakes of the past because people are hung up on the past, we will not fix the housing crisis. And it's awfully sad when I see friends of mine, their children cannot buy a house. It is, it is where are they going? Sure. You know. Morris Pat, you were nodding in approval when Michael was calling for a reduction in the VAT. 
Well, I, I think is uh, most of the points Michael makes are absolutely valid. I mean, you know, we're, we're tinkering with the problem. There, there's no single big initiative that has been uh, taken on, and this this requires vision. I mean, Michael has been long saying it, and I've seen seen and heard him say it many times before that this is a problem that was waiting to happen when the economy recovered, and it has recovered. And I mean, you know, it's all about the numbers at the end of the day. If you don't build thirty thousand houses for the next three years, you, the problem will get worse. Now, where is the evidence that there's 30,000 houses going to get built next year and in 2020? Mm. There isn't any. Yeah, sure. Um, and the National Transport Authority is obviously involved in uh, infrastructure projects, big ticket ones. And Michael said there is a problem with infrastructure as well. That's, that's part of the housing problem. What are you guys doing to try and ease the... Just crisis. going back to the, the housing and, and learning mistakes of the past, one of the things that we've been putting forward is that where we build our houses uh, and where we build all all our development, even our um, ha- uh, shops, you know, businesses, we have to consider um, where they're located and have to ensure that they're either located close to an existing public transport infrastructure or a proposed public transport infrastructure to try and reduce the the demand for travel and the distances that people are travelling uh, between their work and their employment. Um, so that's one thing that I, we would really try and focus on is that wherever the development land is going to be, that uh, it's located either close to public transport infrastructure of, mm. of the current infrastructure or the future. So... In terms of our plans, you know, we now have a transport strategy that was approved by the government uh, two years ago. And we're about implementing that now because we've seen and we can see on our roads today ongoing increased congestion. That's costing business. It's costing uh, millions in terms of congestion costs uh, already. That's going to continue to grow unless we improve our public transport infrastructure. And you have this plan, uh, Bus Connects yes. for Dublin, which is really going to rip up the current model of public transport in Dublin and you're essentially going to start again. Well, in, it's quite a radical uh, proposal. It is, and it's yeah. one that a lot of people don't like. you got uh, more than 20,000 submissions to well, the plan. That's related to the network of services. So what we've put forward as a programme of works across Bus Connects is looking at where the current network is serving. Can it be more efficient? Um, but also improving the infrastructure that supports the bus service. Um, so all of the bus corridors, the main radial bus corridors into the city, improving the uh, bus lane infrastructure on those. Because at the moment, the bus shares its uh, journey for uh, 70% of its journey, it shares with the uh, current car. Uh, conge- so it gets it gets caught up in car congestion. So we want to radically improve the uh, infrastructure for the bus. Right. Uh, where is the Bus Connects plan at the minute? Because I mentioned the fact that you got over 20,000 submissions, which On is network, unprecedented yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. in an Irish context. It is, yeah. It's a huge number and a lot of people aren't happy with it. So where, where does the plan stand now? So in relation to the network, uh, we actually got over 30,000 submissions, so 30, even, right. even more. Um, and we're going through those uh, every single submission. Um, we have indicated that we will change the network uh, proposal that we put out uh, last summer and we'll come out uh, with a revised proposal uh, next year and go out for consultation again. On the bus corridors, we've started that uh, consultation. We Four of those corridors are out for consultation at the moment with another tranche going out in January and another in uh, February. So a significant amount of consultation now related to um, widening the roads effectively to provide for bus and cycling. Uh, Taking away front gardens, never a popular thing to do in Ireland. No, but we have, to, in Dublin. we have to face up to if we want to have a really good 
public transport service and a bus service, uh, we need to provide the space for them to operate and operate efficiently so that we can have reliable journey times and an efficient bus service. So with a fair wind at your back, when might you be able to implement whatever plan you, you finally settle on? Well, again, you know, implementation doesn't happen overnight. Like with housing, we, uh, when you're putting in place infrastructure, so we have to go through a planning process. Uh, and then we have 16 corridors that we need to work on. So we would expect to see them all completed in and around the 2027 period. That's what we're 2027. So almost yeah. a decade. Yep. To, to do 16 corridors, you know, it's quite significant um, amount of work. Now, we hope to commence uh, in around 2020, 2021 on some of them. We can't be uh, delivering and working on all 16 corridors together because the city would grind to a halt. But um, that's what our programme of works is. Significant programme works not just on bus, but also uh, to deliver Metrolink and also improvements on our, on our light rail services as well. Yeah. Michael, what do you think of that timetable? No, I, I look, I, I fully appreciate the challenges that that you have, you know, to be fair. The problem with it is is that we've been very bad at, at forward planning in Ireland when it came to infrastructure. I mean, look at some of the bottlenecks we have in the country and, and the lack of, of public transport. It's easy to blame those who are running them, but really it's, back, it's, it's all about capital investment mm-hmm. and it's all about future strategy. And I mean, I've said for years we should have a national infrastructure plan for Ireland, um, which includes transport. I mean, we have the extraordinary situation wh- where um, the roads nationally don't tie in with the local objectives. I mean, th- this is, you know, we have a serious, um, you know, deficit of planning that's going to get over the current hump on, on, until these new plans kick in. And how are we going to, how are we going to house people? And like, I would say, I would say that Irish Water has extreme challenges. The National Transport, TII, you know, they all have a lot of challenges. But And in fairness, they all have good forward plans. But we have to find a way of providing housing in the meantime. Like the National Planning Framework talks about all the cities. That's fine. But at this moment in time, the cities, a lot of the cities, except Dublin, aren't viable for brownfield development. So do you have no development or do you try and come up with an interim that allows housing to take place on land that will be future zoned anyway or else wait for all these plans to come and where are we going to house people? Like the reality of the situation now is jobs are affected. You know, it, it was the wrong thing to say a few years ago but now that it's happening on the ground we are impacted in terms of foreign direct investment. It's, it's beginning to bite and that's a really serious issue for, for, for the people we're educating in this country and for people who want to come back to this country. So, you know, I can, I've heard people say, well, we've no trouble in getting a job, but we have a big problem getting a house. I mean, goodness, we should be able to, to manage the house bit and hope that, you know, the IDA who do a wonderful job are actually, they're actually being hindered now by a lack of strategic planning. So I welcome the, the transport I- initiatives um, which have been outlined. I think they're great. I think they're taking a long time, but they're, they're bound to take a long time because public processes now, public consultation and implementation are very, very difficult. And I think everyone around this table knows that. 
Yeah. Morris, on a positive note, the economy seems to continue to go along at a nice uh, clip and we're increasing the number of jobs in the economy. The population is forecast to growth. So, I mean, there is something to be positive about next year, isn't it? Well, there's lots of reasons to be cheerful. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially especially as we lead up to Christmas, uh, you wouldn't want to be depressing people. No, I mean, the underlying economy is, is good. It's very healthy. And uh, as Michael was saying, I mean, foreign direct investment uh, and indeed, you know, decisions made around whether there is or isn't going to be a Brexit have been broadly positive from an economic perspective um, but you can see the uh, so so yes in the short term I don't see any great uh, concerns in that context it's actually more likely macro events elsewhere um, including Brexit but not exclude but not exclusively Brexit I mean the US uh, economy now looks like it's going to slow down quantitative easing is finished the tax breaks the businesses got last year you know when they when they got into buyback mode in terms of shares that's all that was all very positive in terms of the the US economy um, but now of course um, there, there's a concern um, that um, inflation will be low or, or zero over the course of the next couple of years so we will be affected one way or another by those things but that's you're talking out to twenty twenty two twenty twenty three perhaps and beyond. So in the short term, I mean, our, our issues are, are are the ones we've been talking about around the table, which is you know we 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 have um, we have a not fit for purpose structure in the economy that needs fixing. Um, and in terms of hope, what you'd like to see is some significant decision made. I mean, for instance, on the point that Anne was making about the plan out to 2027, and you'd like to think that everybody in a planning position in Ireland relates that policy to land policy, land use and planning development. Um, what, what do you think the chances of that are? Uh, not high, um, I would say, not high. Yeah. How's Unifar doing? Great, thank you. Um, it's uh, we had a very good year, um, uh, both in terms of. Uh well, I mean, if you look at if you look at the sector we're in, and clearly medicines is a good sector to be in. The distribution of medicines is not a particularly profitable area. But on the other hand, the other services that we're able to provide, which are wraparound to that facility, uh, have been going very well. And actually, we've had uh, significant growth in the UK. Um, to your, your question, you asked Michael earlier about how many people he employs in the UK. We employ over four hundred people now in the UK. Um, We've also expanded into the Benelux countries uh, this year, uh, and that's providing services to outsource services to uh, manufacturers in the uh, in the medical space. So uh, it's been a good year, right? Okay, uh, an IPO. I mean, there's been rumours of an IPO around Unifar now for quite some time. I know stock markets aren't in a great uh, in great shape at the minute, so not not the ideal time to be thinking about it, perhaps. No, well, I mean, uh, the, the, I mean, I've been around this block before, as you know, so um, I'm, I'm always very cautious in, in commenting on it. Um, it is our, uh, what, our, our, our anticipation and our expectation is that we'd like to go to the public markets. Um, if things went well uh, and markets were ready, then we'd like to go in quarter two next year. Um, but again, there. Uh, so for us, internally, it's about being ready. Um, externally, it's about whether the market is ready. And as you know, um, the market can close very quickly. Um, right now, it, it wouldn't be a particularly good time. So we'll have to see. But I mean, it, doesn't, it isn't impacting on our growth. Or isn't it isn't impacting on our plans. And the spiralling cost of the National Children's Hospital and the St. James's site has been in the headlines of late. Quite extraordinary, one and a half billion or, or thereabouts. It'll be the second most expensive hospital ever built in Ireland. Is that going to impact on the ability of your agency to fund infrastructure? Is there going to be a trickle-down effect in, in that more money has to be given to the hospital, therefore there's less money for other projects? Well, uh, from the National Development Plan, there has already been 8.6 billion put aside for public transport infrastructure um, and we would expect that that will be retained within the transport part of the of the, develop, the National Development Plan. 
What we are concerned about is obviously construction inflation and uh, that's running at around 9% this year. So that can and could have a, an impact um, on the cost of some of our our infrastructure. So that's something we obviously have to be mindful of and keep a, and keep a watchful eye on. But we're moving forward now to deliver and just at least get into... What are you going to deliver in 19? In 19, um, effectively what's been delivered in 19 is more bus services. So... One of the things that uh, we, we have in terms of our public transport infrastructure is it's quite flexible. Bus is very flexible. So as the demand increases, you can put in more services. So that's what we, that's our response for the next number of years until we can put in additional infrastructure. So, for example, you can give Dublin Bus more buses. Yep. Do they have it. the drivers to drive those buses? They are recruiting the drivers to drive those buses. As Do they have our the flexibility to add them to the timetable? They have, yeah. Uh, and that all gets approved through our, uh, our offices. So, you know, we, as an agency, because we're uh, across all public transport in- infrastructure and services, um, we can respond and we're planning for a growth in the, in the, uh, the significant growth again in our numbers in 2019. And we have to respond. Uh, and you privatise some routes as well, haven't you? Well, we don't use that term privatisation. Uh, we tendered out uh, a number of services um, that still remain within public ownership and management. So it's it's not uh, we wouldn't consider privatisation. But we that allowed us to increase the number of services by 10 percent, which is quite a significant uplift uh, between 2018 and 2019. So you're going to see a lot more services operating, not just by Dublin Bus, but also by Go Ahead. And what about Lewis? I mean, these longer carriages that we were yep. all told we were going to get and there seems to have be been a problem with well, them. And no, the seven in service at the moment and that's helped with the uh, some of the overcrowding that we experienced this time uh, last year. Um, that has settled down and there's a, a number of trams that are going to be lengthened over the next year, 18 months as well, which will help uh, with uh, the capacity on the Lewis and we've ordered uh, some more trams for the Lewis so mm-hmm. they'll be delivered around 2021. 20, so there are plans for the increased uh, demand uh, to increase the capacity on our yeah. services. The problems on O'Connell Bridge with the trams getting across No, there? no, we, they, um, a lot of those problems have been um, certainly reduced and we've seen the longer trams operating without much uh, impact on general traffic. What about more frequent dart services? Well, we introduced the 10-minute dart. Um, Irish Rail introduced that. Uh, it has kind of settled down now. So we've seen, you know, very significant growth in numbers on dart and sure all our rail services. Why can't, we, why can't we have darts every few minutes at peak times? Uh, because we obviously have limits in terms of the number of trains that we can put through uh, what is our pinch point, which is just around Connolly Station. But... In the, in the downturn, we were in a position to be able to invest in the signalling uh, infrastructure um, to enable more trains to actually get through Connolly and the, the tra- more train paths through Connolly. Yeah. So we are a- able to get through more trains. Our big, uh, I suppose, constraint now is the number of fleet, is train fleet, um, and we need to purchase more fleet to, be, to build the capacity um, on, the, on our rail services. Okay, so that's another issue for down the road yep. or down the track, uh, as the case might be. Michael, that's, what do you think of the uh, price on that National uh, Children's Hospital in St. James? I'm really surprised by it. Um, Sorry, you're not on the contract? No, I'm not. No, we're not into contracting except for ourselves. Look, one of the problems here we have with, the, with those kind of tenders is that sometimes they come in way below what's expected and then the change figure looks extremely high. So I, I'm, I, I am surprised by the scale of it. 
I, I really I've been involved in it for many years, you know, you know, in Crumden and this National Children's Hospital was a long time coming. Too long, big side controversy. And now we have this extraordinary escalation of price. I mean, someone needs to explain to somebody how this can happen. Um, have we got the right process around tenders? Have we got the right process around tendering, for that matter, in terms of how people approach it? Because I think it's, it's a terrible um, downer to the country when people see this happening and something that's so important and it does impact on other capital projects, albeit I'm glad to hear Anna's hers ring fence, so to speak. I hope I have, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but um, it impacts on everyone when a capital project runs over but runs over by that much. It's just not good enough in my book. Mars, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And look, it's, Michael made the point earlier, we're just not good at this. We're just not good at long-term structural planning. We've been saying this for, what, 20 years? Yeah, but I mean, in, and nothing's changed. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you do sometimes, one, lo- one looks down the pipe in 10, 15, 20 years' time and despairs to some extent uh, uh, at, um, at the fact that, you know, product like this, I mean, you know, the future of the nation is the children of the nation. You know, so you would think that, you know, something like that, you would get world-class talent involved in, the, in, 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 in all the work that goes around it. And obviously, I'm not talking about the medics, I'm just talking about, you know, the, uh, the, whole, the whole project management of something like that. Um, it's just, uh, it's so disappointing. Um, and I'm sure, you know, people with young, young children are looking, and they, they must be in despair at, well, is it ever going to be built? And will it be built on time? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I mean, it's, yeah, that's... Yeah. Okay. All right. Listen, just to close, um, I'd like you all to sort of look out to 2019 and uh, come up with a bit of a, a wish list. Michael, we might start with you. Yeah. A wish list for next year. What would you like to see happen in terms of the economy or maybe your own sector uh, and maybe something that the government could influence? Well, well the growth in the economy um, this year is probably running around 7%, which is quite high. I think that's going to come back somewhat. You know, for next year, I'm going to be very... Uh, um, local in terms of my own business interests and say that I really hope the government are going to face up to the fact that the measures they have suggested will not fix the housing situation and that they will look and engage further on measures that will help. And one further point besides the VAT, besides the land, besides the viability, besides the macroprudential rules, which I, I would mention is the whole skill set area. I mean, I would be seriously concerned at this moment in time. We lost a generation of people into trades. We lost a generation of project management skills as well. And I would think that there needs to be a strategy to encourage people back into trades who left them and also to encourage young people to go into the whole um, professional services around the industry because, quite frankly, we have a problem in that regard if we had the ideal cost base and if we had the ideal macro rules, I think we have, we have a skill set. And we're even looking at alternative construction methods, as are a lot of other companies like us, to avoid some of the trades that are there already. That is serious because in the past, and this is where England really confused me with Brexit, the Eastern European countries propped up the economies here in terms of, of employee employees and in terms of, of, of workers. And they provided a fantastic and platform for companies to do what was done. Perhaps it was overdone, but I cannot see how we are going to do what needs to be done without some strategic thinking, forward thinking, in terms of getting more people in and bringing people back who feel it's not worth it because they have reached a certain age. We need those people to train younger people. That's an an issue for my industry also. 
by the way, I should congratulate you. You were uh, voted Cork Business Person or Person of the Month, uh, Cork Person of the Month recently for your role in the Liam Miller charity match at uh, Parky Cueve. Yeah, so thank you. Congratulations on that. Well, well, talking about Parky Cueve, uh, the costs of that have spiralled <laughs> to 110 million euro. I knew this was leading somewhere. It couldn't be just a simple congratulations, Kieran. Um, okay, well, I'm actually, I, I'm actually on the board of Parky Cueve, so I'm slightly um, in a difficult position. But look. There, there are two figures out there. One is the local county board are saying it's eighty-six million, and Peter McKenna, you know, I'd say unfortunately had that interview, which which now says one hundred ten million. And which figure is right? Well, at this moment in time, there's a process going to start very shortly to figure out which figure is correct. Um, It probably lies somewhere in between. But I, I think that it's unacceptable if it's anything near the top figure. And I, I can't comment beyond that because um, I'm on the board, okay? In relation to the Leah Miller thing, I, I, you know, thank you, but in accepting the award, I'm not great into awards. I did it on behalf of all the committee and all those who supported it because it was an incredible cock day and it shows what can happen in this country when people point in the same direction. It's extraordinary what happened in Cork that Tuesday afternoon, and the family. First full house in Parky Cueve, is that right? full house in Parky Cueve. It was Cueve. a soccer match. It was a soccer match, and look, I, I, like I was chairman of a fantastic group of people, but to, you know, it, it it is a wonderful facility, and it was it was great for Cork, but it was great for the family and the charities that benefited. So everybody was a winner. But thank you for that, and I knew the follow up question was coming. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what about 2019 for you? Well, 2019 for the National Transport Authority is, is going to be about public consultation, a lot of consultation. Um, so all we want to ensure is that we get positive engagement um, because we are, are out there, you know, right across the communities, right across the city. Uh, we're going to be... Uh, you need to be a certain type of person for a public consultation, I suspect, because yeah. it would drive most people mad. But it's, you know, it's part of our... We're a democ- we're, we live in a de- democracy, so we, it's part of the process that you have to do uh, in order to ensure that you can, that the community gets the, um, the opportunity to feed into these major plans, you know, and feel that they're being listened to when major plans are being put together. You also know that whatever plan you come up with is going to discommode a lot of people. Well, of course, you know, you can't put in place the type of in- infrastructure we're going to be uh, putting in place without discommoding some people. Um, what we're trying to do is mitigate that as much as possible. So next year is really about a lot of conversation mm. building up towards uh, planning applications. Anyway, roughly speaking, how many public transport journeys in 18 in Dublin? Um, I think uh, we were, I'm trying to think, we were over the 250 million last year. So we reckon it's going to be up uh, quite significantly. We're well beyond uh, Celtic Tiger numbers now, the 2007 figures. And up again in 19? Yeah, we expect them to be up by uh, about 3% overall in 2019. Okay. Morris Pass, final words to you. We start with you, so we'll finish with you. Very uh, kind. <laughs> well, I suppose to keep it brief, um, for the country, a soft Brexit. Uh, for um, for Unifar, um, the capital markets recover, um, and from a from a policy perspective, that something finally gets done to sort out our homelessness problem, which is the biggest crisis the country has, in my view. Okay.
Uh, we leave it there. That's it for this year from Inside Business. My thanks to Morris Pratt and Graeme and Michael O'Flynn. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. My thanks also to producer Jennifer Ryan for her work during the year and to all of those who have contributed to our many shows. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. This is our last podcast of 2018 so I'd like to wish you all a happy and prosperous new year. Inside Business will return on January 9th and there's every chance we will again be talking about Brexit and the housing crisis and much more besides. But don't let that put you off. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.